Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. Good morning, Erickson Covenant. Glad to see you here today, and uh, hello to those online as well. Once upon a time, there was this guy. He was very well educated, rather important. He knew pretty much everything there was to know about the traditions of his day. He knew every little religious sticking point and why each law was necessary. Not only the main 613, he was even a fan of all those additional rules that had been written to clarify the original ones. Quite honestly, figured he'd done a pretty good job of keeping them all right down to the finest detail. Then he met a man named Jesus in a somewhat miraculous way, and he did an about-face. Well, I guess technically first he did a face plant, and then he did an about-face. He realized he'd been fooling himself, and he wasn't good enough on his own, after all. He became one of the first Christians and made it his mission to plant churches wherever he went. And then, because strangely enough, he couldn't be all the places all the time, never mind when he was in prison, he wrote letters to those churches. Yes, I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. Wouldn't you have been surprised if I said someone else? Do we like everything Paul wrote in all those letters? No, not so much. Me either. Wives, submit to your husbands, he said. And men said, yes, submit. And feminists said, no way, we're equal to you. Children, obey your parents, he said. And parents said, do it now. And kids said, we don't want to. We have rights too, you know. Slaves, obey your masters, he said. And people everywhere said, but that's terrible. We should abolish slavery. And the slave owner said, (laughs) the Bible didn't say that. We're good. But the apostle also said, oh, by the way, men should love their wives as themselves and not exasperate their children to wrath and treat their slaves like brothers. But who wants to talk about that when we'd rather go on crusades for rights? Way more fun to cherry pick and get up in arms and take things out of context and call Paul a chauvinist because you know he said a few other things we might not like in Ephesians and Timothy and Titus. But sometimes we get so lost peering into a microscope and we forget to look at the big picture. Today we're going to get out our wide-angle lens and examine the household of Christ. But first, maybe, we need to pray. Father, we come to you this morning so thankful for your word. We are thankful you called Paul to plant churches and write letters to them so that even 2,000 years later, we can contemplate the ins and outs of our faith and 
what exactly it is that you've called us to do. Lord, as we consider today's topic of flourishing as your household, with all the intricate relationships inherent in households then and now, please guide our hearts and minds to understand how you want us to live with each other. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Going to read today's passage now, starting with Colossians 3, verse 17. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, um, but it's pretty close if you want to follow along. And for those of you online, remember that you've got the, the Bible app right in there. You can tap on that and look up Colossians 3. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord Christ you will receive your inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Did you notice the book ends? Okay, so they're not perfect bookends, I get that. But it's important to notice the opening verse and then a couple that are close to the end. And we're going to come back to those in a minute. But without these bookends, the verses in between have nothing to lean on. They have no spine. They simply fall over. But when there are bookends, the volumes between them stand upright. A lot of you know that I'm an author of Christian romance novels. So it may not be surprising that I talk about stories today. Um, The genre that fits best in today's sermon is actually romantic suspense, which I do not write. And I also do not read it because I happen to like sleeping at night, not worrying about whether there's a bad guy with a gun stalking me. Sorry, I digress. Uh, A romantic suspense is a story that is driven equally and simultaneously by the threat of danger and the promise of romance. So to fit in this genre, at least one of the protagonists is in danger, or perhaps their child or sibling, somebody they care about. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the love story um, is at, uh, comes along at the same time. As the hero and heroine confront escalating jeopardy until both the suspense and the romance reach a crescendo that leaves the mystery solved, the villain defeated, and the main characters ah, living happily ever after. That gives me a happy sigh. I don't know about you. Well, except for that whole escalating Jeopardy part. So why are we having this English literature lesson today? Because, to my mind's eye, this is a perfect example of two parts that cannot stand alone. Each requires the other. If you take out either the suspense or the romance, in this case, the story completely falls apart. It doesn't do what it's set out to do. 
So imagine, if you will, three slim volumes, each filled with two entwined storylines like that. Now imagine them on the shelf with a bookend at either end. Which is more important here, the books or the bookends? Well, the author in me says the stories, of course. That's always what matters most. That's where the life is, the entertainment, the fun, the joy. Well, maybe and maybe not in this case, but either way, we have to start somewhere, so the books it is. The first book is found in Colossians 3, 18 to 19. It's, it's barely a short story, frankly. It goes like this. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The end. But I want you to see the two sides and how neither can stand alone. There isn't a wife without a husband, nor is there a husband without a wife. To have one, you have the other. Yes, I understand about death and divorce, but for the daily aspects of marriage, the ongoing give and take, you have two spouses, right? And so their story is reciprocal. Each side has a job to do. If women submit and men are loving and patient, then there's a flourishing household. When Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, he dwelt on this for quite a lot more verses. Why not to the Colossian church? We don't know. We can only surmise that he focused in each letter on what that particular church was going through at that particular time. There, was, uh, there are a lot of similarities between the letters between these two churches, um, but there are also some very noticeable differences. About husbands and wives, Paul said this in Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So you can see there's a lot more depth in the Ephesians passage uh, for both parties. Paul specified that wives should submit to their own husbands, not men in general, as the church submits to Christ, not religion in general. And for husbands, it's even more pronounced. Does Christ demand the church's submission or else? No. He showers his abundant love on us. He died for us while we were yet sinners. And men are to love their wives as Christ loves the church by giving himself up for her. That's a really high standard. Women, if we put our eyes only on our own husbands, we can easily think 
he doesn't deserve submission. He's not perfect. Am I right? They are so very human and don't always make the best choices. Then to let that imperfect man make decisions I'm expected to follow, too? Men, if you only look at your rather imperfect wives, you will say she isn't always that lovable. And, um, and it might be true. Okay, it is true. And if we use Jesus' love for the church as our standard, that changes everything, to me anyway. So that's the first of the three little books between the bookends. Neither part, for wives or for husbands, can be preached alone. They are meant to be read together and experienced together. The second booklet is found in verses 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And oh, by the way, happy Father's Day. Again, a parent and child relationship is reciprocal. This isn't maybe quite as tight. There are many single-parent households, kids in foster care, and, and other angles to this segment of society. But still, for um, a household to flourish, in general, kids need to obey, and parents need to not be jerks. Both Colossians and Ephesians talk about not provoking your children and making them angry or discouraged. The onus isn't all on children, and it isn't all on parents. It's on both sides. I've always said that our job as parents, mine and Jim's, was to raise our children to be responsible adults who could do it over again and repeat the process. So when children are infants, babies, toddlers, that's when we teach obedience. Because I said so is perfectly valid for a one-year-old. But if we want to teach our children to become responsible adults, then we need to give better answers as they grow so they understand the whys and wherefores of making their own decisions. There's no magic switch. Here you go. Now you're 19. Yesterday, when you were only 18, I made all your decisions for you and expected blind obedience. Today, you're 19. It's all up to you. Have fun with that. Don't mess up. I think that all-or-nothing approach would be the direct route to exasperating your children and provoking them to anger and discouragement. Instead, let's bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, as Paul adds when speaking on this topic in Ephesians 6. Let's teach them how to obey God by how they obey us. So that's the second volume between our bookends. The first book was Wives and Husbands, second book, Kids and Parents, with dad specifically called out. The third volume is the longest. It's found in 322 through 41 and goes like this. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with the sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. What's a bondservant? It's a slave. And Paul is not, in fact, overthrowing the whole Greco-Roman household code here 
the one that allows for slavery. Nearly 20% of the population in the first century were slaves. That's a lot. Aristotle said of a few hundred years prior to that, a complete household consists of slaves and freemen. The first and fewest possible parts of a family are master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. In many cases, master, husband and father all refer to one person, the male head of both the home and the family business. But slaves, don't we want Paul to come down hard on slave owners? I do. I definitely want him to. But no, he tells slaves to obey their earthly masters in everything, which is also what the society around them said. But then he puts a spin on it. It's not because of how their earthly masters will treat them if they do or don't obey. They are, they are to offer their service to the Lord. And their masters are told to treat their slaves justly and fairly remembering they also have a master in heaven. They are not the ultimate ruler they thought they were, but they will answer to God with how they treated those subject to them. I find it interesting that Philemon and Onesimus were part of this Colossian church. Remember the story? Paul wrote a short letter, only one chapter, to Philemon about Philemon's slave Onesimus, who had made his way to Rome after running away. He found Paul there and became a believer. Now Onesimus has come back to Colossae with Tychicus and these letters. He was probably a very nervous man, being sent back to the master he'd escaped from. Paul, in his letter, asks Philemon to receive Onesimus as he would receive Paul himself, as a brother in Christ rather than as a slave. He hints that he'd really like Philemon to legally emancipate Onesimus so he could return to Rome to help Paul in prison. And we don't know how that story ended. But I can say that moms uh, everywhere could learn some guilt uh, things from reading Paul's letter to Philemon. He lays it on pretty thick there. Still, to me, the timely juxtaposition of the books of Colossians and Philemon tell me Paul's true heart on slavery. We could get into it more, but man, that's a whole other topic on its own. So how is that practical for us today? We here in this room and the folks online, we are not slaves. But many of us are employees or employers, and some of us are self-employed, which means we probably have the worst bosses around. But read these verses in that context. If you work for someone else, do your job well, not just when the boss is watching, but heartily for the Lord. If you're the boss, treat those who work for you justly and fairly, remembering that God sees how you treat others. You are not the king of the universe, but you will answer to the one who is. So those are the three slim volumes, but I still feel like giving Paul a little stink eye here. Come on, Paul. What gives? Just a few verses back, 11 and 12, to be precise, you said, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. And in Galatians 3, Paul, you said this, 
In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So how do we reconcile that with these very specific orders to wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves, and masters? If lines of gender, race, and status have been abolished in Christ, why are these instructions still needed, still relevant? As an author of fiction, I know that a believable setting and backstory are vital for readers to understand the plot and to empathize with the characters. So let's delve into a little backstory. According to David A. De Silva, author of a not quite so slim volume called Honor, Patronage, Kinship and Purity, Unlocking New Testament Culture, this head of the household is not a picture of a tyrant who exploits the members of his household so that he may enjoy a life of ease. With his rule comes heavy moral responsibility. A man's authority means duty, responsibility, and care. Were women treated as chattel historically? In many cultures? Yes. But Paul is coming in just after Jesus' ministry and death. And that is significant because Jesus changed everything about everyone's relationship to each other. And Paul is trying to give some context here for how that's going to work in practicality. 2,000 years later, we're still trying to figure out how that works on a day-to-day level. So let's look at what Jesus said about family or kinship. In Matthew 10, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those were radical words in a culture where the honor of the household meant everything. But loyalty to Jesus outweighs even the most sacred of cultural duties to one's household of birth or adoption. It's not to say he didn't uphold natural kinship. He did. But God's goal through Jesus' life and death was to create a new family unit, the family of God. And that, and that now takes precedence over the family of birth. In Matthew 17, no, Matthew 12, we read, While he, Jesus, was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And in Matthew 19, we read this to finish off the story of the rich young ruler when Peter said, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last 
and the last first. As the traditional household was there to mutually honor one's kin, the household of God is to create a similar culture within the body of believers, cooperation, love, and solidarity. When we look at the family of God in this light, we treat one another, whether husbands, wives, children, parents, slaves, or masters, as we would treat ourselves. If someone is suffering, it's as though we are suffering, and we, we automatically relieve that distress as much as possible and as quickly as possible. So it is impossible to read wives submit to your husbands as authoritarianism in the light of Scripture. In Ephesians 5, Paul says to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the scope is much wider. And in this section of Colossians, each time the seemingly powerless party is called to submit, the traditionally powerful is commanded to do pretty much the same thing. Remember those three slim volumes, each with two intertwined storylines we talked about earlier? Now it's time for the bookends. All through Colossians 3, and interspersed through many of Paul's letters, quite honestly, um, we read about how we should relate to one another. The past couple of weeks, Pastor Tom has preached on the negatives, what we should stop doing, and on the positives, what we should focus on doing as we live in communion with one another. Tom summed up the first part of this chapter, because of who we are in Christ, live this way. We don't have a list of new rules. It goes much deeper. We have a new heart, and someone with a new heart puts to death earthly things, anger, malice, lying. There's quite a list. Look it up in Colossians 3. But then we also put on compassionate hearts, forgiveness, love, perfect harmony. This list also continues on, and then it transitions into our first bookend today when it says, and what Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And the second bookend is found toward the end of this week's passage. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. In between those two bookends, We find those three short stories we've been looking at today, the story of wives and husbands, the story of children and parents, the stories of slaves and masters. These three booklets would simply fall over without bookends. And honestly, these bookends might also be a little tippy, but the weight of Jesus' words about family and the way Paul details relationships within the family of God provides support for all of it. In his conclusion of the chapters on kinship in the New Testament, Daniel De Silva says this, and I quote, the church has an enormous opportunity as it is instructed by its scripture to realize the depth of mutual commitment, help, encouragement, and healing that would come from choosing to live as a real family related by blood, the blood of the Lamb. This begins as we speak to one another as family and, makes our, and make our fellow Christians feel they can talk about any aspect of their lives freely with us as family. 
It continues as we respond to one another's needs as we would to a natural brother, sister, child, or parent, making no distinction between the level of care we owe to a Christian sibling and the level owed natural kin. We have a tremendous opportunity, De Silva says, before us to honor Christ by saying his blood is more important than our own in determining who shall be our family. Did you get, catch that? I want to repeat it so, I, so you don't miss it. We have a tremendous opportunity before us to honor Christ by saying his blood is more important than our own in determining who shall be our family. How can we get serious about flourishing in God's society? Let's look at this in two parts. First, who is one brother or sister in the Lord you have trouble submitting to? I'm not necessarily talking about wives submitting to their husbands. Maybe I am, maybe not. You don't need to answer me out loud. In fact, I'd prefer if you didn't. But I'd like you to think about that one person in your life that gets under your skin and not in a good way. Someone who is almost enough to keep you from coming to church because you dislike them or their actions or their attitudes that much. Back to my love of stories. Every good novel has an antagonist, whether they are fully the representation of evil, like in a thriller or some fantasy novels, or whether they are the other half of what could be a particularly sweet friendship or romance. As every story has conflict, our lives do too, and that's often represented by someone close to us who has the ability to irritate us and make us defensive. Have you found that person in your mind yet? He or she doesn't need to be the ultimate villain or even the only villain in your life or even a villain at all. Just someone whose opinions you may disagree with who rubs you the wrong way. It might be them. It might be you, but the odds that you're going to be BFFs is pretty much zero. I'm sure some of you are sorting through people you know in your mind. You've got a feeling where this epilogue is going and you don't want to wind up actually befriending the person you prefer to keep at arm's length. And you also don't want to make promises to God that you have no intention of keeping. May I suggest you allow God to work in your relationships? So, one person. Got him or her in mind? Let's take a moment to silently pray. Not that they will be nicer to you and thus deserve your respect, but that you will find a way to forgive them, to appreciate them, to honor your relationship with them in a way that glorifies God. Let's just take a moment. The second application is this. What is one situation or task in your life where you struggle to give it your all? Is it one of the more mundane or unpleasant tasks at your job? Is it that one class in school you dread every time you walk through the classroom doors? Is it the dishes or the diapers or the dusting? Have you ever asked the Lord to help you do this duty as unto him? As though the way you fulfill this task is a gift you can offer right into Jesus' hands. Let's take a moment to silently pray, asking God to help with this attitude adjustment.
Dear Lord, thank you for the reminders that we live in community, in our homes, in our jobs, in our church. I pray that we will accept the challenge to live up to who we are in you, that we will allow you to transform our relationships with each other and our attitudes to the work you have set before us. Thank you so much for the gift of salvation through the death and resurrection of your Son. May we be faithful in sharing that with others, loving those around us as you have loved us. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.